Hope you guys are doing good. I'm excited. I just want to be honest with you. This is the first Sunday we are actually broadcasting this truly and 100% live. That means wherever you're sitting right now, I am physically in our primary campus in Denver, North Carolina, on this stage right now, not pre-recorded. And I know there's a few people, few people uh, that are shocked. A lot of people picked up on it early that we were having to pre-record and put stuff together to make sure that we could preach the gospel. But there's a lot of people that you're sitting there and you're going, wait a minute, it's all been pre-recorded? It has. And I don't even care if you know about it. Right here, right now, I am so excited to be preaching on Sunday morning in this place. And next Sunday... November 8th, next Sunday, we are opening up the doors back to all of our local pursuit family in the Lake Norman area. So next Sunday, if you are uh, in a place where you're okay with the COVID thing and the pandemic and you want to come uh, join us for in the building worship and the message, we would love to see you. That is next Sunday, and I'm so excited. Uh, but as Caleb so powerfully put it, uh, so many things shut down and so many things changed uh, over the last few months uh, all over the world, really. But the one thing that hasn't changed is our God. He has always moved from day one and he never stops. And we believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that he's going to keep moving. Whether you're in the house with us or you're still in the barn in a small group uh, or you're in Michigan sipping coffee somewhere, uh, we believe God's going to move and we're excited about it. I'm just pumped. I am. I've been excited all day. I'm just excited. I am. I'm just excited. I hope you're excited too. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to 2 uh, Chronicles 16, starting with verse 7. Uh, and, and while you uh, get your phone or your Bible or whatever it is that uh, you're going to look at that with us this morning, I'll let you get there. And while uh, you're getting there, I want to remind myself of something in telling the story of how old I'm getting. I thought back uh, to my junior high and high school years uh, this week because there was a, uh, a, you'll get it in a minute, uh, there was a message uh, that our coach used to deliver to us. He was a good Christian man. Now, his language may not have always convinced you of that, uh, and his anger management skills may not have always convinced you he was in control of himself, but he was a God-fearing man. Uh, and, and we loved him. I loved him a lot. And he used to just get us hyped and just get us pumped up. And I started uh, thinking back, and it just hit me. Uh, I don't know why it just hit me, but it just hit me that it has been like 15 years, 16 years uh, since I was in high school, and I immediately just felt old, and I don't know why uh, I did, but I did. And I, I started thinking back to some of those years and started thinking back to him, and, and, and I tried to find some old. I, I used to keep basically like leadership journals or what I call them now. I didn't call them that then, and I, I tried to find them, and I found a few of them, and I went back, and I wanted to bring out. There was this quote that specifically that he used to say all the time, and he would say it differently, uh, but there was this quote that he would say, and I, I wanted to try to find it, and I found it, uh, and I wanted to share it with you. And this was something our coach, my football coach, used to come and say to us all the time. His name was Coach Cook. He was an amazing dude. He would come up, and he would say to us all the time. He would say, I want you to play every single play like it's the last play of the championship. I want you to play every single play like it's the last play of the championship. And he would say that and different variations of that, and all the coaches would say that, and all the team captains would say that uh, over and over and over again in all kinds of different situations. Uh, and this is what it meant. This was the mentality. This is what he was trying to drive into us. He wanted us to know that every single 
play in every single game was significant. That there was no play that wasn't important. There was no event. There was no drive. There was no defensive stance. There was no uh, onside kick. There was no kickoff. There was no play. There was no uh, team. There was no moment, no game that wasn't significant, that wasn't important. Uh, And he would lay this out over and over and over and over and over again. And another thing he used to say was this. He would say, if you don't play like every play is the last play of the championship. You may never know what it is to play in a championship. And his point there was, if you don't think about every play as significant, and you don't get in and put your heart into every moment and every play, then you probably will be a player, you'll probably be a team, you'll probably be a group of guys that never actually know what it is to play in a championship because you don't look at every moment and every play as significant. And, and I want to I lay that out here today because I believe that though he, he may not have realized it then and he may not have uh, meant it in any way, shape, or form, but that principle behind that, I don't think is just a good life principle. That principle behind that, I believe, is a God principle. And I believe more uh, specifically than just a God principle, I believe that this idea and this concept is part of God's desire for you and for me in our relationship with God to play every play and view every play like it's the last play of the championship. And that'll make make sense here in just a minute, but I want you to go, if you're there, at 2 Chronicles 16, 7. I'm going to read a couple scriptures to you. This is King Asa's life uh, that we're looking at in in 2 Chronicles. This is what it says. At that time, uh, Hananiah the prophet came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubum an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. You have acted foolishly in this. If you want to highlight something or you want to write something down, you need to write down that that sentence, you have acted foolishly in this. I'm a lover of wisdom. I'm a lover of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Uh, I'm, I'm more than a lover of it. I am addicted to the wisdom of God. And there's not too many times outside of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes that God goes out of his way to call something foolish and to uh, correct and to discipline and to bring into light something that is Foolish. Very few times in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelations, do you see God actually go out of his way to come and communicate to a king or to a prophet or to a leader about something that is foolish. Now, what we do see constantly and all the time is God going out of his way uh, to communicate and to, uh, to correct and to discipline and to teach when sin enters into a king's life or sin enters into the people's life or sin starts to surround a moment, a circumstance or a situation. All the time, God involves himself 
himself uh, to teach and, and love on his children and to correct them when it comes to sin. But very rarely does God get involved on a level of foolishness. Now, it's important that we understand this. It's important that we get this moment because when God introduces King Asa, one of the things he says about King Asa is that his heart was blameless and that he followed God all the days of his life. That he was a righteous man, that he believed in the ways of God, that he knew God and he loved God and he, he sought to, to live out his life in a holy and a righteous way. But there was an area of King Asa's life, it wasn't sinful, but it was foolish. And this was actually a pattern uh, that in many ways came to ruin uh, the reign of King Asa and put a massive mark on his reign, on his life, and actually created a significant amount of difficulty in his life around his family and around the people of Judah whom he led uh, during uh, his time on earth. So when God goes out of his way to say, you have acted foolishly, this thing you have done is foolish, I want to pay attention. And if you read the next verse after that line, what it says is, is that uh, he goes, you have acted foolishly in this. And then he goes, you will fight wars or you will have battles for the rest of your life because of this foolishness. This is the truth, and you can write this down too. Uh, foolishness is always, always, always going to bring avoidable difficulty into your life. Now, life is difficult enough. Why on earth would we choose to live in a way that would bring unneeded, unwanted, and avoidable extra difficulty just as an uh, icing on top of an already difficult life? I don't want that. You don't want that. And so I want to know, I want to know what was so foolish about this and why God went out of his way uh, to correct and to discipline King Asa here. So he brings up two situations, and I'm going to fill you in really fast if you're lost. Uh, king Asa was the king of Judah, and during uh, King Asa's reign, there were two dominant enemies in his life. It was King Basha of Israel and King Ben-Hadad of Aram. And as King uh, Asa was coming up on this situation, King Basha of Israel came and, and set himself up in a town very near the capital where King Asa and the palace was. And they basically surrounded this city, this town, and this road and blocked anybody from being able to come in and out of the city. And this is a, it's not a direct threat, like we're here to wipe you out, but it's a, it's a threat in a sense of we're going to stop food and supplies from coming into the city. We're going to stop trading. We're going to stop everything from you can't go in, you can't come out, and eventually you're going to run out of food, you're going to run out of supplies, you're going to run out of resources, and then you're going to want to have to trade with us. This was a very common tactic for kings in this day when they were coming to just try to steal some money from you, get some gold, get some silver, you know, get some supplies. And so they, they came to this moment, they surrounded this one town, they they blocked it, and then King Asa made a genius strategic move. Genius strategic move. He's, he was a brilliant dude. He figured out a way, he thought of a plan to get out of this and avoid the war and avoid any battles and avoid any losses. And so he took a lot of gold and a lot of silver uh, from his own house, from his own family, and from the temple of God, and he put it together, put a little care package together, put a little bow on top, and he sent it to Aram, to King Benadad. And he said, hey, let's be in an alliance together. You take all this gold and all this silver, and you attack King Basha's land down in the south, so he has no choice but to go home and defend himself. 
and then we'll be good to go. You'll get gold, you'll get silver, you'll get whatever you take from his small towns. King Basha and Israel, they've got to leave, they've got to go back, and then we'll be able to keep all the stuff that they brought to wage war against us. Everybody wins. It was a brilliant move, brilliant move, very strategic move. And it works, and it works so good. This was one of those moments, like after it's over, there is no way. Now listen, this isn't in the Bible. This is just my opinion, so just go with me. There's no way after this is over that they did not throw a celebration where everybody just came to just applaud for King Asa. And just be like, dude, you're the man. That was brilliant. I knew you had him the whole time. You're the king. You're the man. Thankful for you. They just had a King Asa celebration. During this moment, this is the moment when God sent the prophet in. If you read that Second uh, Chronicles 16, 7, it says, at that time... Hananiah the seer, the Hananiah the prophet came in. God showed up. Asa thought he just, he just did the most brilliant thing, and he did. It was brilliant. It was, it was great. I mean, it was good. It worked. He avoided the war. He avoided the battle. It was awesome, except that God said it was foolish. This is what he said. Because you have relied on the king of Aram... And you haven't relied on the Lord your God. The army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. So God shows up through the prophet. And he says, you did a very foolish thing. You chose to rely on the king of Aram. You chose to rely on Benadad rather than on me. You chose to rely on your own strategic plan rather than on me. And he goes, this is a very, very foolish thing. It's a very, very foolish thing. And then he, he reminds Asa, and this is important, he reminds Asa about a battle very, very early on in his life. Historically, it was one of the largest uh, armies that crossed uh, the, the Middle East, the Middle Earth, uh, right there in that time frame. It was a million-man army that Ethiopia uh, put together and showed up on Judah's doorstep to wipe them off the face of the earth. They were three to four times larger uh, than, than the people of Judah at that time. And God reminded him. He said, in that moment, you relied on me when you were younger. You relied on me. And that Ethiopian army, that was a million-man army. That was so much bigger than the threat you just faced. And you relied on me in that moment, but you didn't rely on me in this one. Don't you remember how you relied on me with the million-man army and I, I thwarted their plans? I defeated them? The Bible says that God struck the Ethiopian army and they just started to run. We don't know how he struck them. We don't know what he did, but he struck them and they started to flee. And all King Asa and the people had to do was chase them down. And just knock them out one by one by one. And it said that that million-man army faced such a loss in a single day that they were never, ever able to recover. And we do not hear about an army from Ethiopia for the rest of the Bible in the Old Testament. And so you have these two situations. I, I don't want you to get lost in this. You have these two situations. One, King Asa relies on God. And in another one, Asa relies on human intelligence, human wisdom, himself, King Benadad, Aram, strategy. You fill in the blank. And God says it was foolish. It was foolish to do this. In a minute, I'm going to look at why. I'm going to look at why it was so foolish, because that's important. 
But before, I, I, I want you to understand that, that God didn't just come out and condemn King Asa out of nowhere, out of the blue. God came to King Asa early on in his reign, and he spoke specifically to the king. And he made a covenant with the king, and he made a promise to the king, and he gave him a set of guidance and directions. And he basically just said, hey, this is how I want our relationship to be like. This is God talking to King Asa. And I want to read that to you uh, here in a minute. He sent the prophet to King Asa early on in his reign. This is what he says. He says in 2 Chronicles 15:2, listen to me, Asa. In all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you when you are with him. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. I'm going to read it one more time. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. This is the, the scripture of scriptures for today's message. You need to memorize this one. I believe without a doubt that this, this, is, this is God outlining for King Asa the way that God wants and desires and chooses to be in a relationship with the king and with Judah. Now, I want to be clear here. Don't let the word forsake you throw you off. Because I know right now some of the Bible scholars are going, well, the Lord promised never to leave us and never forsake us. And he said he'll be with us all the way to the end of the age. And you're right. The Lord never leaves you. The Lord never stops being God. He never stops being your creator. And if you're a Christian and if you're saved, he never stops being your savior. Your salvation is never, never up, up for grabs. He never leaves you. But I, I want to point something out to you. What he's saying here is in this moment, he's saying, listen, I'm with you and you're with me. I will be a part of every single situation that you invite me to be a part of. Every time you set your heart to seek me, I will always let you find me. In every situation, in every circumstance, whether it's big or it's great or it's small, in every moment, if you seek me, I will let you find me. But if you forsake me, if you leave me, if you don't invite me to the party, I'm not going to go because that's rude. And I, I want to lay this out for you uh, recently, and I hope that they're not watching because they could probably be able to figure it out, but it's not gossip because I'm not going to say their name. The only ones that will know is them and me, and that's it, and that's good to go. We already know it, so I'm going to work it out. I was in a meeting. I was invited to a meeting a couple weeks ago. And uh, they invited me to be a part of the meeting, and, and, and they said, hey, listen, I want you to be a part of this meeting. I want, I want to hear what you think. I, I want you to help me, advise me as we kind of go through this deal. And, and I sat down, and I was like, okay, I would love to do it. I'll do whatever I can. I'll be there whatever I can. And so we came into the meeting. We sat down. I had a good bit of information going into it, um, and, and obviously they had a lot more. It was their situation. It was their moment. I was just there to help. I was just there to advise in, in, in any way I could. And they started to interact uh, in this conversation, they started to interact in, in this moment. I don't want to give it away, so I'm not going to give you the details. Except that uh, as, as the, the meeting started, uh, there was never a moment. We were there for an hour and about 15 minutes. And for an hour and 15 minutes, I did not speak a single word. And I didn't speak a single word because nobody asked me any questions. Nobody asked me what I thought. Nobody asked me for any advice. No one asked me about it. No, no, no. And I was totally fine with that. It wasn't my deal. I wasn't 100% cool. Like it was okay. But I was invited to be a part of the situation. I was present. 
I was there. My body was there. Jordan was there in the moment. I was sitting in the chair with two other guys talking to two other guys, but I just sat there. There was never a moment when, when they looked at me and they said, hey, what do you think? Or there was never a moment, or you know, what do you know about this? There was never a moment. So this is the point I'm making is that I was present. I was there. I was available. But no one ever asked me and no one ever turned to me and no one ever. So I was there, but I wasn't there. I was in the room, uh, but any advice I could have give, I didn't give because nobody asked it. And then when we left the meeting, they were like, what do you think? And I was like, well, it doesn't really matter what I think now. You already did the deal. And in a lot of ways, I want you to understand that this is very similar to the situation that, that God is portraying and painting to King Asa. He says, listen, I'm always going to be with you. I, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to stop being your God. I'm never going to stop being your king. But I want you to understand that the way that I'm choosing, listen, God is all sovereign. He is all powerful. He is all knowing and he is always in control. That's not up for debate. But God in his sovereignty and in his power and in his greatness and in his control, he is saying, I want you to understand that I will be a part of every single thing you want me to be a part of. Every single thing you invite me to, I will be there. If you want to seek me, I promise you I'll let you find me. If you want my advice, I'll give it to you. If you want my guidance, I'll give it to you. If you want my leadership, I'll give it to you. If you want my resources, I'll provide for you. If you want me to actively be your God in this situation, in that situation, when you invite me, I will be there with you. This is cut and dry. This is simplistic. This was the promise. This was the design of their relationship. And God said, I, I want to be this. If you invite me, I will show up to the party. But God's not rude. He's not going to go to a party he's not invited to because that's just weird and awkward. So for Asa, it wasn't like this was a brand new lesson God's teaching him later in life. God laid out this situation from the beginning. He said, Asa, I'm with you. And I will be a part of every single moment of your life that you want me to be a part of. In every situation that you rely on me and you lean on me, I will accept the weight, the burden, and the responsibility, and I will act and I will be God in that moment. But if you choose to rely on something else, somebody else or yourself, and you don't invite me to the party, well, I'm not going to go. And so it wasn't like God came out of nowhere with this. But, but this is the thing, and, and, and I don't want to take too long, but I, I want you to understand, what was the difference? This is what I've been praying through for the last couple weeks. What was the difference between the million-man army and then King Bash's attack years and years and years later? Why did he rely on God when the Ethiopians showed up uh, and he chose not to rely on God when King Basha showed up? Well, at the end of the day, I'm just going to be blunt with you. Uh, the only option he had available to him when the Ethiopians came was God because they were one of the largest armies ever formed on the earth. They were one of the strongest armies. They showed up. There was a million-man army. They had three to four times more men. They were surrounded. Uh, King Asa didn't have any options. And so he came to the Lord, and he relied on the Lord because he didn't have any options. I, I want you to write this down. Most of the time in our life, options are opportunities for us to be faithless and foolish. 
the greatest moments of faith in my personal life are when I didn't have any other options except for God. It's incredibly easy to be reliant on God when the situation is so big and so monumental that the only thing that you have is God. Where we get ourselves into trouble, though, and this was King Asa's problem, this was his issue, was that when there were no options and he could not see a way out and he could not strategically figure it out and he couldn't plan it and he couldn't go and he didn't have the resources and he didn't have the time and he didn't have the ability, when King Asa didn't have what he viewed as the ability to do it, then he would rely fully on God. But in a situation that was smaller in nature, in a situation that wasn't a big deal, in a situation when he could handle it in his own intelligence, in a situation where he could handle it with his own wealth, in a situation where he could handle it by his own means, then in his mindset, he was like, this is too small for God because I can take care of this myself. And this is the problem. And this is why he got himself in trouble. This is why I get myself in trouble sometimes. And this is why you get yourself in trouble is because we think when we have options and we can see a way out and we can take care of it and we can handle it when we can do it, when we can manipulate it, when we can lay it out, when we can have the conversation, when we can lay out the money, when we can have the resources and the ability, when we can do it, then we don't rely on God as much or at all because we can handle it ourselves, because we can deal with it ourselves. And this is what God says is foolish. It's foolish. It's foolish to rely on yourself in the big things and in the small things. And I started thinking about this. What was small to Asa? In the later part of his life, there's two or three stories recorded. One was this one. One was something that is not a big of a deal. But then there was this weird one they threw in you got to understand it. If you don't know a lot about the Bible, uh, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, they're literally history books. That's what they are. They're history books. And as they're going through, they're recording the major events in the king's life. And one of the events that they threw in near the end, which if I'm Asa, I'm like, you don't need to throw that in there. It was a foot disease. Now, I don't, I don't have a foot disease. I don't know a lot about foot diseases or feet diseases. But I know that like, if, if, if you're writing the history of my life, I'm just hoping and praying that you know, my great-great-grandchildren aren't reading that and reading about my foot disease. Like That was a big deal to make it into my, my historical writings. But that was actually how they closed out King Asa's life, was a foot disease. It said even later in life, he had a foot disease, and it grew to be very severe. But through the whole thing, it says that he only depended and sought the physicians, but he never sought God. In the end, the foot disease is what killed him. So this is the lesson that King Asa never learned. And this is the lesson I'm praying and hoping that I will learn once and for all and never have to learn it again. And I'm hoping that you don't ever have to learn it the hard way. I'm sure you already have. Is that God wants to be a part of everything in your life, even the small things even your foot disease. And as I started to pray through this and I started to think through this, the Lord started to lay a few things on my heart and I want to share them with you. Number one, why should we rely on God in the small things? Because there's no such thing as small things. 
In our mindset, because we are foolish in our hearts and in our minds, we think that small things exist. There's no such thing as small things. There's no such thing as small things. There's only big things. Every marriage begins with a single small date. Every action and everything you ever do in life begins with a single small thought. Every affair and every ounce of adultery, it began with a single small conversation. Every career path that you retire from later in life, it began because you accepted one small interview. Life is made up of singular small days and singular small moments. And the most foolish thing that exists inside the human heart and the human mind is that the small things don't matter. You've got to remember, King Asa, he was a good man. He was, he was blameless. His heart was blameless all the days of his life. That's what God said about King Asa. He was a righteous man. But he was a foolish man. He was a foolish man. Because he believed that there were small things. He believed that there was something small enough that we could handle him on our own. He believed that there's some things small enough that we can think our way through it. But the reality of it is there are no small things. If you go through the Bible, uh, God just brought me to King David, and I, I love King David's life for a myriad of reasons. But one of the reasons I love King David's life is because uh, King David, God described King David as someone who trusted him with all his heart and someone who would do all of the things that God purposed for his life. So I was all, I've always been drawn to David for that reason. And God paints the picture that David, as a younger man, he was solely dependent upon God in everything and every way. For David, it's very clear that in his younger years, at least in his younger years, in the first half of his life, David believed and had that wisdom that King Asa didn't have, that, that there are no small things in life. There's not. David didn't realize when he was hanging out with the sheep, when he was a kid, and he picked up this string instrument, probably like a guitar, and he started to play that, and he started to have this passion for music, and he started to, to master the craft, and he started to write lyrics and write poetry and write stuff as he started to go through and write. Nobody, not David, not any of his brothers, not his father, nobody would think at the end of his life that that, that small hobby of his, that small artistic passion of his, would be the thing that, A, God used to bring him into the palace and the throne room for the very first time. Fighting Goliath and defeating Goliath is what made his name known to the nations and to the world. But the thing that got him next to the throne for the first time in his life, the thing that got him close to the king, the thing, the, the key that God used to open the door to David's future was his ability to play the guitar or the harp and the string instruments. Nobody would have thought that. But there are no small things. And David was faithful and he trusted and he was reliant on God, even in the smallest of, of things. And, and nobody would have thought in history 
that it would be the small artistic passion of David's that would transform eternity. Because when you go through the Bible, we don't, even now, we, most of us don't realize the amount of lyrics and poetry and wisdom that exists in God's living and active word that came from this very small artistic passion of David. The vast majority of the Psalms are songs and poetry and stories that David wrote to music in his life. Nobody thought that some of the most uh, clear and accurate prophecies of the Savior Jesus Christ would come through David's songs and David's musical relationship with God. There are no small things. See, we go through life and we're looking for these big moments. We're looking for this, these epic days. I see this all the time in marriage and dating. People date for six months, nine months, a year. And then marriage kind of gets on the table. And then they start seeking God. Now that we're talking about marriage, and now that we're talking about the rest of our life, now I'm going to start seeking God. Well, statistically, uh, history would tell you that once you commit nine months after the age of 18, most of the time they marry that person. That's the truth. Every marriage begins with a date. Why would we not seek the Lord and rely on the Lord even in the small things? Even in the dates that we go on, the people that we choose to spend time with. We don't think about, oh, it's just a friend. It's just somebody that I hang out with. The Bible will tell you and philosophers will tell you and modern day uh, business people will tell you. Some of the most genius minds of the day all the way back to scripture will tell you that you can, you can look at a person and their five closest friends and tell you exactly who they'll be 10 years from now. There's no small things. David taught Solomon something. David's son, King Solomon. David taught Solomon something. He wrote it down in Proverbs 3. And I'm going to read this to you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. So I'm going to lay this out here really fast because I want you to understand this. David writes something almost identical to this in one of his songs. Solomon learns this from his father. And he writes it down in the Proverbs for history to remember. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's the one that gets all the attention. And it should. It's, it, it's, you sh it should. Trust the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding because we're stupid. No offense. You may be too prideful to believe that, but you, you don't know. At the end of the day, you don't know what's going to happen 10 seconds from now. You, you, you only know what you know and you don't know what you don't know. All right, we're foolish in our hearts and our minds. This is why it says, trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But most people don't ever acknowledge the second part of that right before make your path straight. Where it says, acknowledge him in all your ways, acknowledge him. That word acknowledge, I know some translations say submit. That is not, that is absolutely not what it is. It is acknowledge. It's the word yada. That's the, it's the word for uh, knowing someone on the most intimate level. It, in Genesis, when it says that Adam knew Eve, it's the deepest. It's the sex. I don't have to wink at you. I hope there's no kids in the room. It's the same thing. It's the most 
intimate way of knowing someone. That's what that word means. So it's not just submit. It's not just kind of give it to God. He says, in all your ways, know God. In all your ways, acknowledge him. In all the paths that you take, in all the doors that you walk through, in all the relationships that you have, in all the decisions that you make, in all the smallest things in life, all the way to the biggest, know God, acknowledge God, give it to God, invite Him into every single area of your life. Because you don't ever know which date is going to turn into your husband or your wife. And you don't ever know which interview is going to turn into your lifelong career. And you don't ever know which decision is going to wind up changing or affecting everything for you for the course of your life and your family and your kids. Every ounce of uh, like life-trapping debt exists one stupid, small purchase at a time. We say things like, well, it's just a car payment. Everybody's got one. You know, it's just this. you got to live somewhere. It's just rent. You know, it's just this area, it's just this friend, it's just this moment, it's just this thing. I can see a way out. I have options. I can do it on my own. I can handle it on my own. I can do it. I can get it. I can do it. And God says, this is foolish. And I'm going to end with two promises. One in, in Proverbs 3, he says, if you will acknowledge me in all of your ways, he says, I will straighten the path before you. You ever just feel like you just constantly got to work to get through life? You just got to move everything, fight for everything, control everything, manipulate for everything, nothing. Imagine a world where you just put everything on God and he just straightens the path before you and all you got to do is walk in faith. And I want to go back to the scripture I started on. This is the promise of God that he delivers to Asa, unfortunately, for the second time in his life. This is what he says. Because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lobos an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hands. Verse 9, this is it. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support. One translation says to show himself strong to those whose heart is completely his. In the Hebrew, the way that it's said, it says that those whose hearts peace is dependent upon God it just paints the idea God says I'm looking for someone who gives me the fullness of who they are and will trust me in every decision and invite me to be a part of every part of their life every part of their heart and the reason I think it's important that you know that it says heart's peace and not just completely his is because that's that word shalom the thing that gives you peace, the thing that your joy is dependent on, the thing that when you wake up in the morning, this is life. I want, I want God to be a part of every area of my life. I want God to be a part. Listen, I know this sounds, I want God to be a part of my mornings. I want God to be a part of my lunches. I want God to be a part of my friendships. I want God to be a part of my marriage, obviously. I want God to be a part of my fights with my wife. I want God to be a part of raising my kids. I want God to be a part of this church. I want God to be a part of every decision that we make. I want God, I want God to be a part of everything. I want to acknowledge him in all my ways. I don't want to die living my life righteous but foolish, only leaning on God when I can't find my own way out. And I believe right here and right now, this is God's promise for us today. If you seek me, I will let you find me. 
And if you will depend on me and you will acknowledge me and you will show me and give me and invite me to the party, I will always, always be there. And if you trust me with all your heart and you don't lean on your own understanding and you acknowledge me in all your ways, I'll straighten the path before you. God says, let me be a part of your life every day in everything. And I will bless you abundantly. And that's something we're chasing.